going to jump right into this and get to our scripture reading for this session. Our scripture reading from this session comes from Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 34. Luke 23, starting at verse 34. We'll just read the one verse. The scripture says, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our message this afternoon is entitled, The Power of Letting Go. The Power of Letting Go, Forgiveness as an Agent for Healing. Let us pray. Father God, once again I ask in a special way today, a day, Lord, when the entire world pauses to remember that you came to earth wrapped in the flesh of a human baby. Today, Lord, I ask in a special way that you be with us again. Lord, again, I need not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So we're going to start in the book of Genesis, chapter 50, one of my favorite Bible stories. And let me... Um, let me come down again. Let me, let, me, let me give the backdrop of this story. This is one of the most troubling stories in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son at the time. And the reason for that is because his father had, in a sense, uh, violated really what God, would have, what, what God would have wanted him to do and had many wives. So, Joseph is the, the son of Jacob's favorite wife. So he got special treatment. Now, if that wasn't bad enough when he had all the brothers he had, Joseph was crazy enough that when he had a dream that would predict that one day his brothers would bow to him, Joseph was crazy enough to run down the stairs of his house, sit at the breakfast table, and as they were having breakfast that morning, some scrambled tofu, amen. <laughs> Joseph was crazy enough to actually say to his brothers, the dream. I think it was innocent. Some people say it's all Joseph's fault. I, I don't think so, but his brother's hatred for him grew so greatly that they intended to actually murder their own brother. That is powerful. They wanted him dead, which speaks to what they felt about their father, right? You got I mean, to put it in context. They were willing to hurt their father terribly because they were worried. In the, in the old Jewish system, the oldest son usually got like a double portion of the inheritance. Everybody else would split the rest of it. They were worried that because Joseph was the favorite, he would get the lion's share of the inheritance. There was a lot going on, a lot of anger. Their mothers probably had whispered in each of those brothers' ears words against, um, 
uh, words against Rachel and against Joseph. And, uh, and so you can imagine that the brothers were filled with hatred. While they were out, the father sends Joseph to look for them. And when and wearing his beautiful technicolor coat, and when he gets, they see him coming, they plot to kill him. If it wasn't really for two of the brothers, Reuben and Judah to some extent, they would have killed Joseph. But I believe it was Judah who said, listen, instead, you know, why don't we make some money off of this guy? They took their brother and threw him in a pit. As the Ishmaelites were coming by, they sold their brother into slavery. I want you to get this. I want you to picture what it would have been like for Joseph as he was probably either walking or on the back of, a, of, a, of, a, of some sort of a cart being pulled away by the Ishmaelites. As he looked back, as his brothers get smaller and smaller in the distance, can you imagine the heartbreak that ran through Joseph as he cried out, I'm your brother. How can you do this to me? Can you imagine how he screamed, no, no, I love you, don't do this. Can you imagine the pain that ran through Joseph as his brothers laughed at his demise? And eventually they disappeared against the horizon. And when he gets to, to Egypt, can you imagine the pain that he suffers when he has to stand on a slave block? and is sold as a young, fit, handsome man, sold to one of Pharaoh's high commanders, and he's sold into Potiphar's house. Can you imagine as he now has to learn all of the customs and ways of the Egyptians in order to serve in Potiphar's house? How he has to learn an in a completely new language. They cut his hair different. They dress him different. They probably gave him a new name. You see, when, when you see black people come from North America, the Caribbean, South America, one thing that unites all of us is that pretty much every single one of us are the descendants of slaves. And let me submit to you that that haunts us to this day. That legacy, in fact, when Barack Obama was elected and everyone was saying we have a black president, there were many black Americans that he does not represent us. He does not descend from slaves. His father is Kenyan and his mother is white. He does not represent us. Slavery takes hold of you. And I can imagine you have to become a completely different person. But it didn't even stop there. As Joseph is able to do good work in that house as he gets stronger, as he becomes fluent. I believe Jacob taught Joseph very well. He homeschooled him very well back in Canaan. And so he picked up the language quickly. He had to learn every custom, every tradition, how the Egyptians eat, where they lay their silverware. Everything had to be learned perfectly if he was going to serve. But God had a purpose even in that. Eventually, Potiphar's wife comes after Joseph. This is one of the weirdest twists in the whole story because there are a lot of people who would have said, oh, fortune came to Joseph that the master's wife wanted him. Because Joseph could have tried to parlay that into favor inside the house. Instead, Joseph was raised 
to be so pure that rather than be defiled or to do some wickedness against God, he slips out of his coat and like Usain Bolt, he goes flying out of that house. She accuses him of being inappropriate towards her. And guess what? Her husband finds out. And one of the hallmark signs in the scripture that the husband actually still had some level of trust and belief in Joseph is that he sends him to prison rather than killing him. This is the second time Joseph avoids death. His brothers could have killed him. Potiphar easily could have killed him. Nobody would have questioned it. Instead, he's sent to prison, so he goes from being a hated brother in a pit to a slave to now a criminal in a prison. And in those days, they did not build uh, prisons. It's not like America today. In America, we have prisons everywhere. We incarcerate more people than many of the regimes we claim are so terrible in the world. The largest women's prison in the world is in California. I preach at the women's prison at least two times a year. There weren't many prisons then, so this was a unique place. And really it was more for political reasons, like the butler and the baker that people were sent to that prison. But one of the things the story tells us is that no matter how bad, don't miss this, no matter how bad Joseph's predicament gets, he always remains kind. In fact, the key to Joseph's liberation is his kindness. And part of the reason many people in the world cannot find liberation is because they have not found the key to being liberated, which is to remain kind no matter how bad your circumstances are. He's so kind that when the butler and baker comes, after he's been in jail so long, not knowing what's going to happen to him, the scripture tells us he is concerned for their well-being when he sees that they are distraught. And hence, he interprets the dreams. He's able to tell the butler, listen, when you go back to Pharaoh, please tell him about me. I can imagine, Joseph, that the day when his, all of the prophecy came true and the butler went back to Pharaoh, I bet Joseph began to gather the few little things he had, swept out his cell, and sat there waiting for, the, for him to be released in the next day or two. Was it a day or two? Instead, he sat in the prison waiting to be released for how long? For two more years. I would argue that those were probably the two most difficult years of his entire ordeal, waiting for God to finally vindicate him. But the day comes, he's vindicated. He, he's able to tell Pharaoh his dream. He's able to then uh, set up a plan in which to manage the famine that was coming. And he goes from pit to slave in Potiphar's house to prisoner to vice president. Oh, y'all missed this thing. And here's why God allowed all of that. You see, in Potiphar's house, he learned the ways and customs of the Egyptians, the language of the Egyptians, so that when he was in government, he could function as a high-class Egyptian. While he was in prison, the spirit of prophecy tells us, he learned the laws and the ways of the justice system of Egypt so that when he was in government, he could exact and understand how the judicial system in Egypt worked, which was a relatively sophisticated system. 
every step of his of, of, of what he went through had lessons that he needed when he got to where God was sending him. And let me tell you something about life. No matter how terrible your life gets, if you pay attention, every day there are lessons that God is giving you so that you will later on be able to more completely satisfy your purpose. His brothers finally come. You know the story. They need food. And when they get there, they can't recognize Joseph. He was young when he left. He's got an Egyptian haircut. He's got on Egyptian clothes. He speaks perfect Egyptian with no accent. So they do not recognize their brother. And the, 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 probably the most powerful part of the story is that Joseph tests them before he lets them in. Finally, he does. And they go back and they get Jacob. And you would think the story ends there. Everybody's just going to live happily ever after. But the fact that Joseph had gotten over what happened to him does not mean that his brothers got over what they did to him. And that's where we land in the story. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requit us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, so shall, so shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did evil unto thee. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Look at what Joseph's response is. The Bible says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So let's put this in context. The brothers recognized that Jacob, their father, was like a buffer. At least in their mind, he was the buffer between Joseph and revenge. When their father dies, they are sure Joseph is now going to exact revenge. And they beg Joseph to forgive them. If that is the case, why does Joseph cry? Joseph cries because he had long forgiven them. And he was hurt that his brothers, after all they had all gone through, that the brothers still were in a place. They were still back at the pit they threw him in. Oh, y'all missing this thing. The brothers had never left the side of the pit. They'd never left the animal they killed to put the blood on his coat to bring to Jacob. The brothers were still in the act Decades later, Joseph wept because he realized his brothers did not have the kind of relationship with God that allowed them to let go of what happened and move on. The Bible goes on in verse 18 and says, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And look at what Joseph said. Look at verse 19. This is important. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God. Joseph said, Listen, I'm not who you have to worry about. 
I was working, when I, I told you my testimony, when I was the director in the health officer for the city of Pasadena, California, I had um, one of the groups I worked with was a nonprofit that worked with the Crips and the Bloods. Have you guys heard of the Crips and the Bloods? I was talking about the Crips and the Bloods in Cape Town, and everybody knew who I was talking about. <laughs> they, they, have, they told me they have a significant gang problem in some parts of the city. So I was working with Crips and Bloods. These guys are soldiers, street soldiers. And like uh, your, your son, like when I said gangsters yesterday, these were real born gangsters, born into these gangs. But let me tell you something, there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. I was working with a first aid church and a non-religious, non-religious, non non-private organiz non-profit organization and together with the Adventist church because we would open up our gym to play basketball and the Bloods and Crips, as you know, who are like uh, in America, we'd say the Hatfields and McCoys, they were at war with each other. Now watch this. The church, our church was neutral territory, so they could come into the church and play basketball and then they'd go their separate ways and they wouldn't fight. The nonprofit began to give them job skills. The Sunday church did the best work. They actually began to give them Bible study and eventually baptized many of those young men. And many of them came out of the gang life and were now deacons and ushers and, serve, and, and, and served in that church. You got to get that backdrop because when they call me one afternoon at like 6 p.m., I'm sitting at my desk. The nonprofit calls me and says, Dr. Walsh, you need to get over here. We have a problem. I get in my car and I race to the nonprofit office. And when I get there, there are about eight of these young men. And some of these dudes are huge, some of them are little. You know what you learn in the streets of America? It's not the big dudes you worry about. It's the little dudes you worry about. The little ones are the killers. Because they've got something to prove. <laughs> and they're all sitting around the table. And I sat there and I said, what's going on? These men, were, they were crying. I said, what happened? One of the guys we were working with who was coming out of the gang life, former U.S. military, interestingly enough, the only one of them that any military experience, had gone into Los Angeles with his girlfriend and their child, and when they went into the city of L.A., somebody shot up the car they were in. Somebody was retaliating for something that maybe happened a long time ago. I don't know. He was hit with six bullets. The girlfriend was hit with one. The baby, fortunately, was missed. The one bullet that hit the girlfriend killed her immediately. Died right there on the spot in the car. He was taken to the hospital and was in critical condition. The baby was fine, praise the Lord. When I, when I sat down at the table with these guys, what do you think was supposed to happen next? It's revenge, it's retaliation. In fact, this isn't even a discussion. This is the code of the street. The laws of the concrete jungle. You can't allow somebody to do that to your homeboy. You can't allow your road dog to get shot up like that, kill his baby mama, and risk the life of his child. Somebody's got to pay. I sat there. And the guy says to me, the guy, who's, who, the guy who works for the nonprofit, says to me, Dr. Walsh, you got to say something because if you don't, there's going to be blood in the streets. And I'm saying, what in the world am I supposed to do? You know what I mean? I just left work. And I sat there and I said, Lord, speak through me. 
because I don't know what to say. And all the first words out of my, as these men are crying, many of them thinking how they were going to retaliate, the first word out of my mouth was a Bible verse. And I, I opened my mouth, and what came out was, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. And then this verse is what comes after. I said to them, if you go after them to get revenge, you are saying you sit in the place of God. And those street soldiers began to cry and weep profusely. And guess what? No one ever went to get revenge. We cried, we prayed, we talked. I stayed there with them for a while, and nobody ever went to get revenge. The young man made a full recovery, six bullets in him. I actually had to get him into mental health um, uh, a program for therapy. But I was able to, he was able to get back on his feet physically and mentally and, take, and get a job and take care of his child. The problem with revenge is this. The problem with revenge is you start to say, I take the place of God. And let me tell you something. For an oppressed people, this still applies. Doesn't matter how horribly you were treated, you must remember that if you think that by getting revenge you'll make things right, all you will do is spiritually flip it and the oppressed will become the oppressor. Joseph goes on and says in verse 20, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God did what? Meant it unto good. Joseph recognized that at every phase of his trial and tribulation, he was absorbing information, skills, and talents, tightening his relationship with God, all of which he would need one day to basically save the known world. Are you getting this? He learned at every step so that one day when he was standing in front of Pharaoh, he was in a position to properly lead a nation through a famine. But if, you, if he was focused on revenge, he would never have been there. If he had sat in that jail, stewing on how he was going to get revenge on his brothers if he ever saw them again, stewing on how he would get Potiphar's wife back, stewing on how he'd get Potiphar back or the Ishmaelites back. If he had sat in the jail, constantly thinking about how am I going to hurt the people who hurt me, Joseph would never have been able to do what God called him to do. We're going to come back to this. You thought evil against me, but God meant it good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. He says, now therefore fare ye not. Joseph said, listen, you have nothing to worry about. Look at the opposite of what you would expect. And every Christian in Africa needs to understand this. White, black, or any other color, you can put on the spectrum. This must be understood. He says, now therefore fare ye not. Instead of revenge, I'm going to nourish you. Not only you, I'm going to take care of your children. And he comforted them and spake kindly to them. Did you get that? Joseph's revenge is kindness. And I'm going to ask somebody to move this back down. He, somebody raised it up, and now the words are getting cut off on this side. So maybe you could lower that screen. Over here it says, we, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., 
famous for the civil rights movement in the United States, a Baptist minister. The civil rights movement in America was born out of the church. In fact, although we give all the credit to men like Martin Luther King and, and Abinathi and all these other guys, the reality is that the civil rights movement was a grassroots movement of poor people in urban, the urban South in America who decided that they would change the world by the methods of Jesus Christ. They would turn the other cheek. They would carry the coat an extra mile. They would walk to work to boycott the bus rather than turn the bus over and set it on fire. Are you getting what I'm saying? They, would, they denounced violence completely. And that is the reason the entire world sympathized with black America and came to our aid. Had we started revolution and riot, had we burned everything down, we'd have simply been annihilated by the military force of the country we were in. Dr. King says this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So lesson number one. There are about five lessons, I think, on this one. The first lesson is this one. Forgiveness takes strength. What we are told, especially as people who have been oppressed, what you're often told is you are weak if you don't retaliate for what has been done to you. I want to submit to you that the reason the civil rights movement is literally the benchmark of all social change movements in the last 200 years is because we used in America the method of Jesus Christ rather than the, than the art of war by Sansu. Are you getting what I'm saying? We use a peaceful method to try and change the world. And I believe that that took more strength than if they'd taken up arms. Forgiveness takes strength. And this is not just the forgiveness of big political issues. This is the forgiveness of your parent because they didn't do you right. Or of your step-parent because they abused you. This is the forgiveness that comes from the ex that you had, the ex-husband, ex-wife, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, who treated you terribly. This takes strength. It's easy to stay mad. I told you my father left when I was two years old. My older brother is seven years older, and I don't know that he ever fully, until maybe he was older, he ever fully forgave him, and I believe it hurt him for much of his life. I am telling you that if you learn to forgive, and I one day had to look my father in the face and forgive him for being an absent, neglectful father. Because watch this, I refuse to carry his sin into my future life. Mahatma Gandhi, you see a little picture of him back there, he said this, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And you remember what he did. He brought the mighty British Empire down nonviolently for India. India was the crown jewel of the British Empire. And yet the British had to give back India, and the Indians never raised up to fight. This is from the Sabbath school lesson a little over a year ago, last December. And, and I'll give you this hint about the Sabbath school lesson. If you really want to enjoy the, enjoy the Sabbath school lesson, always get the teacher's comments and read them. I have found that the most substantive material in the Sabbath school lesson is tucked away in the teacher's comments. And I know this because my wife teaches Sabbath school and she makes me read it. 
and I find jewels and pearls in there that I don't find in the regular lesson. You can do that whatever you want. It's just a little hint as to how you can better enjoy the Sabbath school lesson. The Sabbath school lesson author says this, forgiveness involves a conscious choice to give up feelings of resentment toward another person. And consequently, it also removes any right, it removes any right to seek revenge for what he or she has done. Forgiveness does not require you to be the guilty party or imply that the other person deserves forgiveness. Rather, forgiveness roots out anger and bitterness from our own lives, helps heal wounds, and look at this, and it builds a basis for restoring relationships. Forgiveness does not mean excusing wrong behavior or removing any consequences that might result from the behavior. True forgiveness recognizes the seriousness of the offense, but chooses a path of healing. God forgave humans even though we were undeserving of his forgiveness, but divine forgiveness did not undermine the seriousness of sin or remove all the consequences of sin. Indeed, look at this, indeed Jesus took the ultimate consequence of sin, suffering death on our behalf. If God treated us like we want to treat our enemies, where would we be? Because many of us by our sin have become the very enemies of God. Ellen White says it like this, the spirit of prophecy. In the first testimony is page 602. The real greatness and nobility of the man is measured by the power of the feelings that he subdues not by the power of the feelings that subdue him. The strongest man is he who, while sensitive to abuse, will yet restrain passion and forgive his enemies. Watch what Sister White says. She says, such men are true heroes. Such men are true heroes. To make the point, the Bible includes this story. Peter runs to Jesus and says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter says, till seven times. Now, you know, Jesus, uh, Peter was always trying to secure the position of the vice president in the new kingdom. He was always sneaking up on Jesus with some great idea, selling Jesus an idea, trying to figure out a way if he could get a position over everybody else. And this time he thought he had something. You see, in the Jewish economy, the number of times you had to forgive was three. So Peter says, listen, we'll f I'll, listen, Jesus, should I forgive somebody seven times? That's more than twice three, and it's a perfect number. Jesus said, no, I say unto you, not seven times, but what? Seventy times seven. 490 is the literal number, the very prophecy that tells you the time of the death of the Messiah. Isn't that deep? This exact same number, 490, is the number, is the prophecy we use to, that the wise men even knew, as we're today being, uh, the, world, the world calls Christmas Day. The wise men knew when to go because of that prophecy. And really in the Jewish economy, when you multiply seven times 70 like this, what he's really saying is there's no limit to how often you ought to forgive. I, let, me, let me stick this in. I'm going to talk about why forgiveness is good for your health, but I want to stick this in. You see, I, I speak to this from many levels. There's a familial level. I can talk about what my father did, his absence, his neglect, the fact that he didn't want to financially support us, 
all of the pain that came from that. It was terrible, but I had to forgive my father. I wouldn't be the man I am today if I stayed stewing and upset with him. But there were other people I had to forgive. When I went to high school in Miami, when we moved from Connecticut to Miami, the first day I went to class, I didn't know, my mother didn't know this when she enrolled us in the school, but the school was full of neo-Nazis in Miami, Florida. The first day I went to school, painted on the wall of the bathroom was a picture of an ape with a noose around its neck, and it said, N-words, go back to Africa. That was my introduction to my new school. They were an incredibly racist contingency at the school. Fortunately, my best friend actually still was a white kid. He was, he was really, actually really cool, and he liked reggae music, so we got along real good. But they built a synagogue across the street, and they went and they put swastikas on it. They sprayed swastikas, because the school was about 40% Jewish. It was a horrendous two and a half years. I tell people all the time, if every time they called me the N-word, they had given me $5, I could have paid for college cash. Constant, nonstop, teachers, students. I remember uh, when Doug Williams, a black quarterback, was going to play for the Washington Redskins in the Super Bowl. There was a debate in one of my classes as to whether or not black people are smart enough to play the position of quarterback in American football. And this is not that long ago. Of course, God is good. Doug Williams went in there and shattered every Super Bowl record ever made. And this is why you don't need to get revenge. God will do what he needs to do to make his point. But what that did to me, I want you to get this, because I just left from South Africa. I spent the weekend in South Africa, and I can see that the, the shadow of apartheid is still upon the country, that there is talks of revenge. In fact, um, when I talked about this at prayer meeting, about forgiveness at prayer meeting in Johannesburg a week ago, one week ago today, one of the elders of the church came to me and said, uh, we need this message in South Africa. And he started to show me the, the comments on a prayer list of pastors and elders speaking some pretty troubling things against white South Africans. And, the, and there was a few, if not at least one, white South African pastor on this um, chat group, like a WhatsApp trap chat group, who, who came off because of the disparaging comments that were being made by men of God. That is troubling. Because you know what the Bible says about the church? We talk about the remnant and all the things that point out who the remnant are. You know one of the signs that you are actually in the right place with God as a group? He says, by this will men know that you are my disciples. How will they know that we are who we say we are? Because we have love what? One for another. Here's the thing, that love is not qualified by because they treated us good first. We love you no matter how we were treated. Oh, y'all missing this thing. Had Jesus had the stance we have when he got to earth and saw the mess that man made of the planet he gave them, Jesus would have just wiped everyone out. In fact, when Peter cuts off the high priest's ear, Malchus's ear is chopped off and it falls to the ground, Jesus could have said, good, it's time to fight. Did he say that? Jesus reaches over, picks up his ear, and one of the last miracles Jesus works before he dies on the cross is to replace the severed ear. 
Then he tells his disciples, don't you understand, if necessary, I could call 10,000 angels. <laughs> when Hezekiah prayed to God about the Assyrians, how many angels were sent? And how many people were killed? 185,000 soldiers. Jesus said he could have called 10,000 angels. And yet he went to the cross and forgave everybody for what they did. Because of this, I started to follow. <clears throat> I started to study things. I told you I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. Because of this, I began to want to believe something different. The, the hatred, let me tell you what hatred is. It's contagious. And the hatred of the oppressor, if you're not covered in the blood of the lamb, the hatred of the oppressor, you will, you will literally catch it like a virus. And you will literally begin to spew the very hatred you are supposed to be against. The genetic makeup of the whitest northern European or the darkest African is actually minuscule, the genetic difference. We are really the same people. But I started studying with the Rastafarians. And the dreads would teach you some crazy stuff. I was at Bob Marley's house. I used to stay at Bob Marley's house. My niece is Bob Marley's, my little cousin is Bob Marley's first niece. So I'd be at his house and I remember one of the dreads telling me that Haley Selassie, the former emperor of Ethiopia, was coming back to get them in a spaceship. I said, I didn't know Ethiopia had a space program. I started studying with the nation of Islam, the 5% nation of Islam. You know what the 5% nation of Islam teaches? It teaches that the black man is God and the white man is the devil. And my question to them whenever they try and convert me was, if the black man is God, how come he can't get a job? Out of that anger, I began to listen to groups like Public Enemy. Black Uhuru, and we talked about music yesterday, and the music of these revolutionary ideologies began to corrupt me. And here's what it does. It began to separate me from church. When I would go to church, I couldn't stand being in church because of what was preached. The love of God was being preached. Forgiveness was being preached. I couldn't stand to hear someone say that Jesus said, turn the other cheek. That was something I hated the most. And I was prepared to leave the Seventh-day Adventist church if I could just find something I could leave that made sense. And guess what? I could never find anything that made sense. In fact, I, I began, you, you all ever heard of a guy named Louis Farrakhan? I got in with the, the, the nation of Islam. I never joined any other religion. I remained Adventist the whole time. Praise the Lord. But I don't know what would have happened to me. I'd actually left. And I remember um, going to hear Farrakhan speak one Sabbath afternoon. I left after Sabbath lunch and went to the Miami arena. I was in medical school to hear Louis Farrakhan speak. I was in with them so good that they would have special seating for me. I was on their National Stop the Violence Committee. And I went in to hear Farrakhan speak, and there were a lot of what they call Garveyites, because there are a lot of West Indians in Miami. And some of you have heard of Marcus Garvey. And he wanted all black people to go back to Africa. It's interesting, he wanted that, yet he never made it to Africa himself. He went to England many times, never got to Africa. And all these Garveyites are there. And Farrakhan says, the black man is the original man, which is what the Hebrew Israelites now say. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew Israelites are coming after our young people in our churches in America, the black churches, saying that you are actually descendants of the tribes of Israel. 
Have that, has that happened come here yet? And they say, look, if you're from Jamaica, you're from the tribe of Dan. I'm like, what? That doesn't even make logical sense. Anyway, so Farrakhan is speaking, and Farrakhan says, the black man is the original man. And I said, okay, I've heard this a million times. Keep talking. Even the evolutionists say the black man is the original. Did you know that? Even the evolutionists want to put stuff in Africa. And you know why? Because evolution is racist. Because if you evolve, if you're the first one, isn't the last one more complex? That's why I don't believe in One of the reasons I don't believe in evolution. It's inherently racist. Anyway, Farrakhan says the black man is the original man. And I'm saying, okay, I've heard this before. He says, and I can prove it. I said, I sit up in my seat. I'm a scientist now. I have a degree in biology and chemistry. I'm in medical school. I sit up. I want to hear the proof. He says, I can prove it. He says, 66 trillion years ago. I said, trillion with a T? Even the evolutionists only say billions with a B. He said, 66 trillion years ago, he said, he said, the black man blew the moon off of the earth with dynamite. What? I said, the Chinese invented dynamite 3,000 years ago. How did they have it 66 trillion years ago? People started to applaud. This is when I began to get afraid. Then he says, and I can prove it. Now I'm sitting way up in my seat. I am on the edge of my seat dying to hear this proof. He says, you see, when the astronauts, when the U.S. astronauts went to the moon, they could still smell the dynamite. What? If you're on the moon and you smell anything, you're dead. You can't smell moon air. This is not a cartoon. The only thing you smell on the moon is what you brought with you from Houston, Texas. Are you getting what I'm saying? I want you to get serious. I sat in my seat and I repented. Right on the spot I sat and I said, Lord God, has my anger caused me to sit and be seduced by the doctrines of devils. It's a satanic doctrine that eliminates the need for a Jesus. Because if you're already the original man and the black man is God, you don't need a savior. And all of a sudden, all the teaching, all the truth rushed back to me. And I repented because I realized in that moment, as I prayed many Adventists, who are of Kosa and Zulu, and what is the, the group here in Twana? I, I don't think it's as much here as it is south of here in South Africa. But if you are an Adventist, white or black, and you allow hatred, in fact, Professor Veith outlined it perfectly last night. It, a false doctrine in Calvinism allowed the system to perpetuate in the first place. You don't think the devil is going to raise up false doctrine to now flip the thing? Do you think the devil cares who kills who? Do you really think he cares which group attacks which group? 
Roger Renault in his book, A Trip into the Supernatural, when he was worshiping the demons, the demon priests told him that when man goes to war and they're killing each other on the battlefield, he said the demons stand around the battlefield and they laugh. And I want to say this to those who are of the remnant who know this truth, do not be the agent through which the demons get a laugh. Because one of the things that this thing will do to you is that if you hold on to it, it will make you sick, physically ill. Black people in America die sicker and sooner than everyone else. And part of the reason when you study the research is because we carry a burden of stress tied to racism, real and perceived. When you learn to forgive, you have better health. In fact, this is one of the things missing, in my opinion, from our health message. The idea that you must forgive if you're ever going to have good health. People say, you know what? This Adventist ate well all their lives and they still died early. Some of them were holding on to resentment and, ha and hatred and guilt and shame, and that killed them. As I'm going to show you in a second. Give you better mental health. Less anxiety, stress, and hostility. Lower blood pressure. Fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, improved self-esteem. If you hate your enemy so much, you remain in the position he wanted you in. If you don't want to be the lowest class in a society as someone else tried to make you, forgive them and you are liberated from ever being in that class. Continue to hate them, and you'll remain forever in that position. You want to know one of the reasons why African Americans do so well? In a country that has been against us for 400 years? Because collectively during the Civil Rights Movement, many of us just let it go. It's coming back now, unfortunately. Hatred is coming back in an organized form in black America, and I'm afraid for even some of our Adventist churches are going out and marching on the Sabbath against this and that, and I'm afraid that we are trying to fix America rather than prepare our people for the soon coming of our Lord. In a new study in the Journal of Health Psychology, researchers analyzed the mental and physical health of 148 young adults. As one might expect, a correlation was found between high stress levels and more health problems. We'll talk more about that in a second. But the study also indicated, watch this, that in the cases where people showed forgiveness of both themselves and others, the connection between stress and mental illness practically disappeared. Hating other people, being mad at other people, not forgiving other people will drive you crazy. And Dr. King said that. He said, if I hold hatred against those who have oppressed me, it will not cause them any problem. Instead, it will kill me. I paraphrase that. While you're hating the other person, your blood pressure's going up. They've gone on with their lives. I remember I had a patient um, come in once, and she was so mad. She, was, she, she wanted medication because she was so upset at what had happened to her. And she said, look, I need, again, I need drugs because I'm upset about this, this, and that. And I said, what's really bothering you? She said, my ex-husband is on a cruise right now in the Caribbean with another woman. I said, oh, that's terrible. How horrible. How long have you been divorced? 12 years. 
I said, lady, his blood pressure right now is going down, 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 down. He's right now got his feet up bathing in the sun and you sitting here in a clinic driving yourself mad. You see what I'm saying about not forgiving people? She's sick in the clinic and he's on the boat with his feet up probably eating chicken and pizza. And she'll die first even though he's eating food that'll kill him. There is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed, says Karen Schwartz, MD, the director of the Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. It is believed that chronic anger, look at this, it is believed that chronic anger puts an individual into a mode of fight or flight, resulting in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and the immune system. Those changes in turn increase the risk for conditions like depression, heart disease, and diabetes. But it seems forgiveness can help to mitigate those stress levels. Get this. When you won't forgive people, you stay in a state of fight or flight. You stay stressed out. And I'm going to give this to you real quick and then we'll move on. So what is stress? Stress is a condition or feeling experienced when a person perceives that demands exceed the personal and social resources the individual is able to mobilize. In other words, stress equals demands minus resources. I use this a lot in my messages. What I've learned as a Christian is that God has given me all the resources I need, no matter what the demand. A lot of times we pray for God to remove the demand when what he wants us to do is to incorporate heavenly resources in our lives. Forgiveness is one of them. See, what happens when you're constantly mad at someone is you, your cortisol, your adrenaline, all of these stress hormones are released into your system. Your heart rate goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. Your liver goes into gluconeogenesis. Starts making sugar, which over time develops insulin resistance. Are you getting what I'm saying? Your pupils dilate. And what happens is you begin to be a, a constant chronic ball of stress and that weight kills you. The constant elevated blood pressure to get blood to your brain to deal with the stress causes strokes, damages the lining of the blood vessels in your body and increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. I could go on and on. The fact that your immune system drops, your body has only but so much energy. So if you're all stressed out and all your energy is, is, is bent and built in being, uh, or burned up in being mad at someone who did you wrong, guess what happens? There's not enough energy left to run your immune system. So your immune system drops. And you know how you get cancer? You know, everybody gets mutated cells that can become cancer. If you eat right, the antioxidants in blueberries and watermelon, they help to fight that. But you still need a healthy immune system. There, there's, there, there are certain types of cells that will go around and eliminate those mutated cells in your body. If you are always angry or mad at someone who did you something years ago, it is your immune system that won't function right. That's why he said, but well, how did this person get cancer? They ate this way, they did this, but their immune system was shot because they weren't using heavenly resources. The third key, forgiveness is key to experiencing God's love. Forgiveness is key to experiencing God's love. If you do not learn to forgive other people, you will never experience 
God's love. Matthew 6 says, and forgive us our de- 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is a painful passage of Scripture if you've been sexually molested, if you have been beaten and abused, if you suffered under a terrible regime. This verse is hard because it tells you that, in fact, forgiveness is a currency. And unless you are willing to spend the currency of forgiveness on those who have harmed you, you cannot expect God to spend the same currency on forgiving you. So it isn't just that not forgiving people will make you sick. It will stymie your salvation. This is why the devil wants whole groups of people to convince our, all, you know, whole other groups of people to stay angry and not forgive. He can sweep countless people into hell because they have a, on paper, they have an actual right to be angry and not forgive. Right? They've truly been hurt. I'm not dismissing that wrongs have happened. But if you're not willing to forgive the person, it is your salvation that's put in jeopardy. The Amplified Bible, I actually like the Amplified Bible when I'm studying for sermons. It's a little cheat sheet to get little extra words in there. Verse 12 of Matthew says, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And look in the brackets, it says, letting go of both the wrong and the resentment. For if you forgive others their trespasses, the Amplified Bible adds this, their reckless and willful sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, look at this bracket. But if you do not forgive others, nurturing your hurt and anger with the result that it interferes with your relationship with God, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. If you hold on to anger and hatred for the person who harmed you, they become your God. Luke 7, 47, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are what? Forgiven. Jesus is talking about Mary Magdalene. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same what? Loveth little. If you don't forgive other people, you don't receive God's love. If you don't, uh, you don't receive God's forgiveness. If you don't experience God's forgiveness, it will hinder your ability to love God the way he wants to be loved. Ellen White says, we are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God, but by our attitude toward others, we show whether we have made that love our own. Wherefore, Christ says, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This is a great story. I'll skip most of the story and get to the last verse of it here. But this is the story of the two servants. One of them owed the guy, some people have, have estimated, is the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even a million dollars. And he goes to the guy, cries, and he's forgiven by his Lord. But the second guy, who only owes this guy like $10, and he says, listen, you pay me everything you have, or I'm going to mess you up, I'm going to do this and that to you. And the guy 
you know, throw, messes him up. Some of his friends here and run back to the first guy and said, listen, look what he did to him. Then his Lord, after that, called him and said unto him, oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should you not uh, thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was wrought and delivered him to his tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. Look at this last verse. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your heart forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. What you owe God is infinitely more than anybody owes you. Ellen White, in letter 388, November 19, 1907, says, Comfort your heart, my brother, by believing that the Lord wants you to be saved and that you are his child. Do not think that your mind must be in a certain state of feeling or else you are not accepted of God. Your faith must rely not on feeling but on the promises of God. Walk by faith in a thus saith the Lord. Rest your case with the Lord and believe his word. Uh, believe, oh, believe the word of the Lord and walk by faith, not by sight. Consecrate yourself anew to God. Be loyal and true to a thus saith the Lord and stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ doth make you free. That point of that is do not go by feeling. Because let me tell you something, wanting revenge feels good. Stand on God's promises. Last couple ones, request and, and confess. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Availeth much. One of the processes of forgiveness is sometimes we've got to go to people and be like, forgive me. I was wrong. And even in our marriages, when my wife, one thing, I'm quick to say I'm sorry. I, I kind of mess up a bit sometimes. <laughs> but I've learned that if you allow ego and pride into your marriage, and you're not willing to say, you know what, that's my fault, you'll destroy your marriage. You'll destroy any relationship that is worth having. So the Bible says, look, you gotta confess your faults even to other people. Ellen White says it like this, one of Christ's last commands to his disciples was, love one another as I have loved you. John 13, 34, do we obey this command or, or are we indulging sharp, unchristlike traits of character? If we have in any way, if we have in any way grieved or wounded others, it is our duty to confess our fault and seek for reconciliation. This is an essential preparation that we may come before God in faith to ask his blessing. Did you get that? If you're not willing to tell people, listen, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. People you may have injured in church with a word at board meeting or business meeting, if you're not willing to go back and say, look, I'm sorry, forgive me, that was my fault, it will cause you not to get the blessings God had stored up for you. The last lesson is this one. You got to learn to forgive yourself. But, though, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Philippians 3 and verse 13. I put this here not because I believe you can theologically forgive yourself. You can't atone for your own sin. But you also can't carry a sin on your back the rest of your life. Psalm 51 is the great text that tells you that. David basically tells God, look, I messed up. I sinned. I was born in sin, shaping iniquity. He goes through the whole thing. But at the end, he says, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. He says, and once I'm converted, Lord, I will tell sinners of you. 
Let me tell you something. I know some of you made some mistakes in your life. You spent time in the no-tell motel when you shouldn't have. You've been with people and in places and in things you had no business doing, and you even when you knew better, you still messed up. But I challenge you to believe the power of God in the blood of Jesus Christ, that the blood still washes away sin. Why I'm a Christian, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is, is this simply, that when God deals with your sin, he forgets it. He says, I will take your sin and cast it into the depths of the sea, and I will remember your sin no more. When he talks about David in certain places after the death of David in the Old Testament, he does not even, the Bible doesn't even record or say the sin that David committed with Bathsheba and her husband. And you say, well, how, wait a minute. He says, David was perfect, upright. He followed his law. How could he say that? Because God forgot it. And here's the thing. If God forgot the mess that you did, and he cast it into the bottom of the ocean. Did you know man has been to the moon? We've never been to the bottom of the ocean. That's why the Bible says it's going to be put there. God could have said, and I'll put your sin on the moon. But he knew one day man would get to the moon. Man will never get to the bottom of the ocean. So it's symbolically saying his, your sin has been put where no man can get to it. Don't miss this church. So if God has taken your sin and put it where no man can get it, why are you going out and buying scuba gear and getting on a deep sea uh, uh, fishing boat so you can go out and try and find the mess God already forgave you for? Are you getting that? Do not let your past. Listen, you, we were talking about success and mentors earlier today. You will never be successful on any level in this life, especially in your spiritual life, if you sit and you weigh yourself down with what you did wrong years ago, months ago, or days ago. You got to let go of it. And then you got to say, you know what? I'm going forward in God. Pressing forward, as Paul says. Ellen White says it like this. She says, the tempter stands by to accuse them. This is why you've got to let go of it, of that sin. As he stood by to resist Joshua, he points to their filthy garments, their defective characters. He presents their weakness and folly, their sins of ingratitude, their unlikeness to Christ, which has dishonored their Redeemer. The devil will try and remind you of your sins. He is the accuser. That's what Satan means. He endeavors to affright the soul with the thought that their case is hopeless, that the stain of their defilement will never be washed away. That's what the devil wants to do to you. He's done it to me at times. I tell you, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and the devil's trying to convince me that I'm still who I used to be. He hopes to so destroy their faith that they will yield to his temptations, turn from their allegiance to God, and watch this, and receive the mark of the beast. Ellen White connects your inability to accept the fact that God has forgiven you to you receiving the mark of the beast. The last slide is this one. Lewis B. Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. There's two stories I usually tell at the end of this talk. One of them is from Rwanda. I won't do that one because you guys probably know it better than I do. And that was of a pastor's wife who went through the Rwandan genocide and ended up adopting as her own son the young man who killed her husband during the genocide. 
Powerful story. Mark Finley actually went to her house and everything. Powerful story. But more recently, there was a story in the United States that I'll use. A white police officer, a woman, had worked 14 hours shift. She lived in an apartment complex, and according to her, she thought she was going into her apartment. Now, there was plenty of evidence that the door, there was a red mat in front of the door she was going into. There was no red mat in front of her door. She walks into, she, I don't know how she gets it, maybe the door was open. She goes into somebody else's apartment who happens to be a young black man of Caribbean descent, not even of Caribbean descent, he's actually in the United States as an immigrant from one of the small Caribbean islands. She walks in as he is sitting on the couch eating ice cream, watching television. She thinks he's an intruder and she shoots and kills him right there. He's in his early 20s. Black America is inflamed, as you can imagine. People want revenge. There's a whole thing about the police killing black people in America. Here's the funny statistic. The police in America actually kill more white people than they do black people. Proportionately, it's more black people, but nobody talks about that. It's, it's interesting. She goes in and she kills him. When she does, she calls 911. She says, look, I thought it was my apartment, my mistake. Now, in America, there's a tradition. There's very few white police officers going back all the years of the United States history that have ever been convicted for killing a black person. Very few. So this was a high-profile case. She went to court, the judge was black. The victim was black. She went in there and they made the case for her that she thought it was her, wasn't her apartment. She wept, she seemed sorrowful, she seemed remorseful. She was convicted of murder. Everyone applauded. Justice has been done. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison. A lot of people say, wait, that's not enough time. Well, hold on, that's not the good part of the story. Or the bad part, however you look at it. What's interesting is that when the young man who she kills family comes up from the islands, they are devout Christians. They love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. When the young man who was murdered, when his brother takes the stand to speak at the sentencing hearing, he says to her, I love you and I forgive you. His last words to her on national television in the United States of America are, and I pray that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. The judge comes off the bench and hugs her and gives her a Bible to take to prison with her. You would think everybody would be happy. What an ending. Black America was furious that this young man forgave her and that the judge hugged her and gave her a Bible. But you know what really happened in that scenario? As terrible as that tragedy was? On CNN, where they will never speak positively, positively of our Lord in general, and on MSNBC, and on all the networks of America, in one moment, the Christianity of that young man and that judge told America and reminded America again of the power that is in Jesus Christ. When that boy said that, and it, CNN, it, in fact, some of their pundits couldn't even make sense of it. 
because you serve a God who in this world makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to forgive the person who hurt you. But Christianity is not logical to man because man wants to save himself. Let me challenge you. I don't know who hurt you. It might have been your parent, might have been a sibling, might have been an ex-lover, an ex-husband, ex-wife. May have been a child, may even be a child of yours, a best friend, an old boss. Maybe you were abused by the police or soldiers. I don't know what you've been through. But I will tell you that if you hold on to that anger and that hatred, and if you don't forgive even those who have harmed you, it will not kill them. It'll kill you. Physically and spiritually. And I want to say this. Last night I told you, yesterday I told you when I spoke, the calling is on Africa to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. But the devil will, he will, he will paralyze and cripple that effort if we are more focused on revenge than we are on going home to be with Jesus. I don't know what you've been through in your life, but if you want to let go of whatever it is that's been holding you back, there's something in your life, and I stand again. I forgive my father every chance I get. <laughs> if there's something or someone in your life that you need to let go of and ask God to help you to forgive, I want you to just stand where you are as we pray. Every eye is closed. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the power of forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, even when we have been harmed in ways that are almost unspeakable, Lord, when we've been abused, Lord, when we've been molested, Lord, when we've been oppressed and trampled upon, Lord, when that which was rightfully ours has been taken, you still require us to forgive. So, Father God, today, for those in this room and those who will hear this later on, I pray that we get the courage to be forgivers. But Father God, we would not hold on to past hate angry, our anger or resentment that we would let go and allow God to fill the void of that pain. Lord, some of us have hurt others and we need to go to them and ask for forgiveness. Lord, I pray for, that we would have the courage to ask forgiveness. And then, Father God, I pray for healing in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I can't finish this talk without saying that out loud, Lord. I pray that it doesn't matter what tribe, color, what creed, what, 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 um, what creed, Lord, even. If people come together and become Seventh-day Adventists, if we believe the truths of this Bible, Lord, I am asking today that we would be unified under the banner of Jesus Christ, that that blood-stained banner would be our flag, our citizenship would be in heaven, and that our God would be our leader. Lord, I pray for peace. Lord, there will be no peace in the streets if there's no peace in our hearts. Bless your children, especially in this remnant church on this mighty, mighty continent. That by the love we have for one another, many would come to know Jesus. 
This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.